Latina Lifelinks podcast, a platform to amplify Latina voices, to validate their story, and engage the comunidad worldwide. I'm your host, Consuelo Crosby, and also creator of this content. If you would like to chat about what you've heard here today, then reach out to me through our website at thelinks.com. That's L-N-X-X. Or through our Instagram profile at LifeLinks. I'd love to listen and engage in whatever you have to say. Hola, chicas. Welcome to the LifeLinks podcast, where we share the full picture of a first gen vida, validating each other's journey and lifting one another towards joy and success. We have a special guest, Linda Gonzalez sharing her compassionate journey through amazing experience that most of us will never go through. Linda is a bilingual small business strategist, coach, and author of two books, Breaking Through Your Own Glass Ceiling, based on 20 years of coaching practice with a focus on BIPOC, women, and under-resourced, resilient communities, and The Cost of Our Lives, which explores familia, betrayal, and redemption. Very grateful to have you here today. So welcome, Linda. Thank you so much, Consuelo. It's just a joy to be spending time with you. It's such an honor to meet you because we have been in the same circles over and over again, which is shocking we have not met before. It would seem when we put our circles together that that Venn diagram should have had us at the core of a friendship already, but thankfully it came together with this podcast. And on this, we are really excited to have you share with us your life story. So why don't you go ahead and start in on that? That's such a big question. <laughs> this, this is the crib notes. <laughs> okay. If someone said Linda Gonzalez, who is that? What would you hope they say? Mm, I hope that they say that I was a person who brought clarity and joy and motivation to live a full-hearted life. Uh, I am not a person who minces my words, as they say, muy directa. Like sometimes people think I'm from New York, not California, because... <laughs> My personality is to just go right to the point, to speak truth. Uh, it got me into a lot of trouble in a society that did not think I had the right to speak truth. I always tell people that in my career, I have been suspended and demoted and fired. And I say that because it's these quiet little secrets that a lot of people have that they feel like it it was because of them and their failure. And at the time, I thought it was that, but I learned that the system was not set up for me to succeed. And that was such a powerful awareness. So the other thing I want to have people be able to say is that I was always someone who centered justice and racial equity. I always looked for where people's voices did not have space. And I was not interested in speaking for people. I was interested in creating the space for people to speak for themselves. 
Um, and I think that's a really important thing because when you have a big heart and you see what's going on, it's very easy to get into that fixer, savior mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's been a really important part of who I am and my life story that I have created space for people to find their voice. Uh, certainly as a mom of my now 27-year-old twins, certainly oh. in... Uh, yeah, different communities that I've been a part of. Yeah, <laughs> twins. <laughs> That's a lot already. Okay. That's a lot We're seeing already. a big story coming up. <laughs> yeah, a big story. But, you know, different. I think I've been in the middle of a lot of circles, mm-hmm. uh, spiritual circles and writing circles and social circles and um, sports circles. You know, I was the captain on the soccer team and I was the person who brought together people of color to write in my home. And I was part of a small circle of people that kept my uh, people of color Buddhist Sangha going. So I have been in the center of many beautiful flowers that have bloomed. And one of the things I say is that I live a hashtag bouquet life <laughs> because <laughs> I have been the part of so many different sometimes seemingly divergent aspects. And then I have found a way to pull them together the best I can, sometimes very messily and sometimes (laughs) with great beauty. Oh, wow. That's very much an empathetic personality. And Mm -hmm. just it comes from within. Is that part of your cultural heritage, you think? Maybe your life links? Is that part of your upbringing? Obviously, it's just who you are. You don't have to try. You just do it. What do you think? Right. You know, I was having another conversation with somebody who has baby twins about (laughs) the nature versus nurture. And I said, yeah, Mm. but what we never put in is society, right? Which I have decided that actually nature and society are more powerful than um, nurturing. Um, and so that's really hard to say as a parent. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it doesn't mean that I didn't have a lot of influence with my children, but I'm very aware now as they are older, how much if I look back that their nature, who they are as beings has mm-hmm. always been there and that my job had been to be aware of that and to nurture that part, their nature, right? Um, And that how society in many ways has been this battleground for all of us to try to hold on to our nature and our uh, well-being. So where where did it come from? I mean, yes, you're right. I think it was my nature. And I think in terms of my parents and my life growing up, I grew up with my father who immigrated from Mexico and my mother from Colombia. They met in Los Angeles and we actually grew up in a variety of different white suburbs, which I didn't even realize for years because (laughs) in our home, it was all, you know, it was Spanish and we always had somebody from somewhere in the family living with us who spoke only Spanish. There was a very Spanish um, Latinx cultural norm in the home And we would step out of the home and it was really predominantly, you know, kind of working class initially and then middle class white folks, right? And so Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it because no one talked about it. It wasn't a conversation in my home about the suburbs. When I began to have to deconstruct what happened, why did my parents do that? (laughs) Like, why 
as I say, why did they choose to raise us in West LA and not East LA, right? And to understand that they were looking for what they felt was the best environment for us to thrive and were not aware of and certainly didn't articulate the cost. Mm. What do you think the cost is then? The cost is that I got a very uh, isolated, separate sense of what Latino, Latinx families were. I was exposed to white culture and white ways of being. And I pretty early on got the message that they were better and that I absolutely had to assimilate and that I was going to be better off being uh, as white as I could be, even though in my home, (laughs) it was this profoundly uh, different environment, just like totally different environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't put down. It's not like people said, oh, white people are better than us. Nobody ever said that. And my parents were not the kind of people who had dicho. Well, my dad had a lot of dichos, but they didn't, (laughs) you know, they didn't say things to me. It was more what I saw and what I understood from being out in the world about who had power, who was making decisions Mm -hmm. and how that impacted me. Okay. So they never said outright, we're trying to assimilate into this culture. That portal of the home, walking inside and outside, it's head trippy. It really gets you spinning on your identity. Right. And I think that that is right. I was a very external processor from little on. And so I think that I always was somewhat rebellious. And I think that was part of my trauma, the way I manifested some trauma from all of that. You know, I used to laugh and say there was one Latino family on every block where I grew up. Uh, and we all found each other because we carpooled yes. to, the, to the Catholic school. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right? Yes. We found each other. Truth. That is so true. Yeah, we had the same. There was one, one family from Spain, one block over. And it's like, oh, yeah. And that car load going to school was hilarious. But then you got out of the car and you're like, Psh. <laughs> right. The code switching started very oh. early on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting. So when you say um, looking back, when you look back, was that part of a process for you? Did you do that regularly as you were coming into more uh, adult situations? Did you reflect back often? You know, I did because in Another way, part of my nature is to be very reflective. And also because I was put in environments where I was allowed to reflect. In other words, Hmm. when I went through high school, I didn't have that much time to reflect, but I got involved with this very sweet, um, spiritually based uh, group. It was called Search for Christian Maturity. And we would do these retreats and it would be very much, very emotionally based. And a lot of it was about people would give these short talks and talk about what was happening in their lives and decisions that they made. And so it was a very reflective process. And I remember uh, at the end, you got to get up and talk about what the retreat meant for you. Mm -hmm. And I had invited my mother and I got up and I was just sharing, you know, my heart, my corazón and like what it meant to me and, you know, giving her some love. 
the way she reacted to it was like, you know, I must be a devil or something, you know, because she couldn't take it in. And so that was a really powerful moment when I understood my mother carried a lot of insecurity, a lot of pain that she had not processed. And that impacted her deeply and that it also impacted me in ways. And I, you know, had done some level have compassion for her and at the same time separate myself and go, I need more Mm -hmm. because I need to feel good about who I am and what I want to do in the world. Oh, gosh. Oh, that must have been a really struggle. How old were you at that time? That was high school? That was high school. So I was probably um, maybe 17. Wow. Which is, you know, a really tough, challenging time where you are as a teenager, right? Really trying to establish and understand yourself. My Mm -hmm. parents, God bless them, you know, they took care of our physical needs 100%, but on an emotional level, Mm-hmm. You know, they were, neither of them were cariñosos. They, um, neither to themselves or to us as kids. I think that particularly my mother felt like we were going to, in some level, be better than her. And I think it tugged at that deep, deep insecurity that she had. And like you said, you asked a while ago, we're now doing our our interesting circular conversation where you asked yeah. about, you know, where did I learn to be that way? And, yeah. and I think that part of it was in seeing and understanding that my mother was deeply competitive in a way because she understood oh. that we were not going to have to face the challenges that she faced. And particularly because she was one of those people that did not have a good ear. And so her accent always was very, very thick is the word, right? We say, so nobody, you know, I remember people calling my house and, and uh, saying, I don't understand your mother. And I would just be so furious. Like, how can you not under, I understand her perfectly, right? Like I couldn't understand. Yeah. Like what accent? (laughs) They don't have an accent. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between those two worlds. Yeah. Huge. Like right there was the and I, I was yeah. mad about it, but I couldn't have articulated at that time, oh. like why that made me so angry and oh. why I couldn't understand that, of course, these, you know, mostly white people would not understand my mother's accent. Right, right. Oh, I hear you on that. And it's what you know, and it's what you grow up with. And you're very protective. You're very mature at a young age to have that recognition of how people are, the depth of their person, uh, rather than taking it just for their surface actions. That seems to be part of your innate personality. So I was just wondering, did this, uh, these retreats and the spirituality and this reflection and always being able to go back, is that where your writing stems from? Or was that also part of your personality? Yes and no. Thank you for that. Actually, you're right. Yes. My writing has always been a reflective process. It started when I was in eighth grade uh, and I just recently got rid of it. I said, you know what? We're done here. (laughs) But I held on to my, I had my eighth grade uh, journal, which was, you know, a lot about boys and it was a lot about, um, I would read, I was, uh, what was that called? Vociferous? Voracious. Voracious. Voracious reader. So I would write the books down that I read and I would grade them. (laughs) 
that could have been another career. Still can be another career. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I was already like assessing and yeah. analyzing literature. Wow. I was in eighth grade. So I never wow. said that out loud. That's, that is hilarious. That is exactly what I was doing. But it was a reflection, you know, at whatever you know it in eighth grade. So I started keeping journals since eighth grade. Okay, there it is. And yep. kept journals for years and years and years. Uh, I kept journals. And then I was also, what was the word we said? Vo- voracious. voracious letter writer. Oh. And then people would say, yes. And they, back in the day, and they would say, oh my God, your letters are incredible. They're just, you know, so interesting and so well done. So then I started making photocopies of my letters before I sent them. So I had all these copies of my letters because people were affirming my vocation before I was. Uh, but somehow uh, in my mind, I, yes. I thought I believed them. And so I had kept my journals and I uh-huh. kept my the letters I'd written over many, many years. And that was absolutely one of my most important reflective processes over my life has been my writing. Oh, okay. Okay. So interesting. Again, you were born with it. This is innate to who you are. This is what you were meant to do. And from critiquing books to writing your own, um, did did those (laughs) journals lead you to your first book, The Cost of Our Lives? Oh, that is a great question. Well, let me just say that when I was writing my book, I did refer back to the journals because I thought, well, this is where I can actually see what I was thinking about. So when I was writing about certain ages, I could go back and find the journal from that time and read it. I don't think it caused me to write, but I think that it was great research material. You already had it. Yeah. Yeah. I already had like research on myself, which again... (laughs) Who who does that? Who has that, right? So the journey was more about when I was an undergrad at Stanford, and I was so overwhelmed there. Wow, congratulations. I didn't know you went to Stanford. I missed that. I did. It was very enriching, but also just very much a, a place where I didn't feel I belonged and where I was always struggling, and I did not know how to ask for help because I'd always had good academics without trying hard, and I had never learned how to study. I'd never learned all kinds of things that was very much exposed when I was at that school. So it was painful in many, many ways. It took me a while. I kept stopping out. I just was like, I I just can't go back. I would stop out every fall, and I'd go take courses in a at a junior college, community college, because I couldn't quite get myself there till the winter quarter. But when I was there and I thought, okay, I got to graduate. They used to call it the the red book. Back in the day, it was a book. And it was every degree, every degree that Stanford, I read that book from cover (laughs) to cover. And the only degree that I thought I can do this was English creative writing. Like I was like, I can do that. And that's how I chose to be. I was affirming my gift, but nobody else was in a way. Like I took my courses uh, but nobody really talked about how are you a writer in the world. There was no practicality because, you know, so many of these lo- these uh, schools don't think of it as a real degree. Like, to be able to write is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> See? Yeah, that's when 
you're living from your soul all the time and the soul is always guiding you where you're supposed to be and your brain's totally out of it. Your brain's not questioning it and brain's like, okay. But see, there's another six degrees of separation because I lived 10 minutes from Stanford. We should have met a long time ago. You were born a fighter. You were born an empathetic fighter, which those two don't usually go hand in hand. And so you go through Stanford, you have an English degree, and you know you love writing, obviously, from a very (laughs) early age. Uh, Voracious is no longer a good enough adjective for your reading, because who reads an entire catalog of a university's offerings? (laughs) This is beyond reading. But uh, then you get out, and, and no one's like, here's what you can do with this. That's right. That's right. And so how did you find your way forward? Well, there are many years to finding my way forward. I'll tell you where there was a bit of the spark where the light got turned on. I still did writing in different forms, but um, the babies were born and I lived in Berkeley at the time in California. And there was a call out for an anthology written by mothers. I wrote this essay. And then I sent it off and they said, yes, we will publish this in our anthology yeah. of Berkeley Moms. Wow. So that was really the spark that drew me back into my writing as something that I wanted to preference. They wanted to change the title of the essay and I said, nope. And then in the end, they titled the entire book, <laughs> my essay called The Life I Live Now. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah, because people were like, oh, are you getting your life back? And I go, I never lost my life. My life just changed. Like this whole way that you lose your life when you have kids. I was like, nope, I didn't lose my life. It's now a different life. And I think it's because I had started to go out and play soccer again. Because fun fact, I played soccer on and off for 30 years. And I started playing in 1972. When Title IX passed, which, of course, I had no idea about Uh until I started writing an essay about my life in soccer. I did my research as a good writer does, and I went, oh, my God, I was the first year that girls could play soccer. I was there. Yeah. Louder for those in the back. Hello. Hello. There was a time when you were not allowed. Right. And it it wasn't back in your great grandparents era. This is the here and now in our lifetime. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how did you, did you say, I just want to play soccer and your parents went, okay. No, 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 no. I, my dad was a big amateur athlete. I really, I carry forward that inheritance and that process. So he, you know, played soccer for many, many years. And then when the uh, minute that girls could play, he enrolled my sister and I in teams. Yeah, he was like, no, kidding. Nope, my daughters are going to play. My son plays and my daughters are going to play. He's the one who just said, no, you're going to play. And I was like, okay. Oh, for heaven's sakes. That is so not typical. Oh, for heaven's not sakes. Typical. Yes. Not oh, typical. Not <laughs> typical. Yeah, right. I used to say, you know, in this essay that I wrote, I said, you know, instead uh, of giving me my quinceanera Tacones, he gave me a pair of soccer cleats. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's more empowering. He knew you. See, he did his parenting well. He knew who you were. He didn't go I by do. what was I, happening. I think, so. I think so. My parents were both real fighters. 
And so there was a part of them that even though they were very annoyed at me because I disagreed with them all the time (laughs) and, you know, I pushed for what I wanted, they appreciated me on some other level. You know, they saw me as someone who was a fighter and they somehow connected that to who they were. Yeah, it must have made them feel comfortable in one regard that you were understanding of who they were because it was coming out of your own personality. But I'm sure it made them feel safe to be with you, given that you were this fighter. I mean, I think that there was some level of respect. And again, this is not anything that I understood at all until years later when I was writing my memoir. And really, that was the real deep exploration, excavation into my life. So I did the essay, and then I started talking to another Latina mom at our kids' soccer, and she said, I want to write, and I go, me too. So we started getting together, like, maybe three or four Latinas, and we would just write for, like, an hour, and then we'd read a little, and we'd all clap because we were just kind of, like, just, like, little babies starting out in our uh, writing career, and then we created a writing group it was all women of color. And then eventually it all of our writing for each of us morphed into an actual book. So that's really what the oh. impetus of the of the memoir was. Actually, I went to a writing retreat that a friend had, and the instructor said, you know, what's the story you really need to write? And I said, Ah, the story of my father and his two families. There were lots of little twigs and and Mm. wood that was put on the fire over a series of years. Kindling, the kindling, yeah. Yeah, wow. So this was all fueling the first book that was a culmination of telling your story. And how long did that book take to write? All right, everyone, take a deep breath. (laughs) It was 13 years from when I started to when it was published. Wow. Uh, That's dedication. But I'm guessing when you got into it that you just dug and dug and dug into what I did. I dug and dug and dug. I was often in my bed writing with a, you know, tissue box next to me. When you're excavating your life and your family's life, uh, you are going to find all the things that were never meant to be found. It was a very healing process, you know, but healing does not come easily, right? So there was moments when I would just have to stop and just sob and sob and sob uh, and then, you know, get going again. And that's where all that community support was so essential for me because no matter how cumplida I am, it's not an easy road. It's not an easy road. Being a writer or for yeah. the self-reflection or both. I mean, it's well, both. and raising kids and yeah. having my own business and playing soccer, which then morphed into tennis, but always being an active person and doing my strength training and my practicing yoga and doing my salsa dancing and, you know, seeing <laughs> people. And I mean, it was a full life. You live life large. I love it. You live life large. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I'm wondering uh, when you came to 
digging deep, excavating, getting to your own story. This is your own story that you have to dig deep on. Was any of it associated for the tendency for the culture to be very hush-hush about certain things? I mean, I would say yes and no, for sure. There were all kinds of clues and obvious facts that pointed to what was going on with my father. And we were, you know, they, my mom and him were just like, yeah, we're not going there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was a very much a message of like, don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Don't bring it up. And there was a lot of me that didn't care, right? Because it was already complicated to live my bicultural life as it was. Mm -hmm. And so where, at least initially, I always felt like I was doing something wrong all the time because somebody didn't like what I was doing. Even, even within my parents where, you know, in Colombia and Mexico, they have the different words for Oh, so many things. <laughs> and so in my own home, <laughs> if I used a certain word for green beans or for avocados or for uh, apricots or a bag, you know, then somebody was going to be mad at me. And so I also think that silenced my Spanish uh, because I was like, you know, if I said talega, my mother would be happy, but my dad would be like, no, it's a bolsa. You know, aboricoque, no, it's uh, chabac chabacanos, right? I mean, oh so gosh. I realized that there was, you know, a very competitive <laughs> spirit in my home for each of them to try to just hold on yeah. to their own particular cultural norms and not understanding that when they said something negative about each other's culture, that they were saying something negative about their children, Whoa. From both of those cultures. Yeah. It didn't occur to them that you're in the house listening to saying, hey, I'm I'm half of that. You don't like half of me? Yeah. Wow. Right. Oh, my God. Tissues. It's tissues time. Yes. Wow. As a reader, I think people would hit that point in the book and just like, mind blown because it doesn't occur to someone who doesn't live that life. Again, hugely part of the struggle. That's a powerful capture that might really explain a lot for the young first gen Latinas right now. Like, because you don't know when you're going through it, you don't know. You just know something's bothering you, rubbing you the wrong way. And you, you're young. You can't know. It takes moving on in life and reflecting back and having other people speak their story, which is why we do this podcast, to hopefully throw some like moments out there where you go, yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly what it was like. A hundred percent. And I always say, you know, that is what writers do. I remember there was a wonderful woman who lived with us when I was a little, we were very little, who was muy cariñosa. And I realize now, you know, I got a lot of my sense of uh, empathy and compassion from her. When I was interviewing people, she asked me a question when I was interviewing her. She was like, ¿Por qué tienes que escarbar? Right? Like, why do you have to dig in there? Right? And I mm -hmm. said, that's what writers do. We go, we got to take this, the broom and we get under the beds trying to you know, what is there? We got to get it out, right? And so, you know, it's our superpower. And we do it 
knowing that the more personal we make our stories, the more universal they are, the more that they touch other people is in the personalness of it. So people will read the book and they'll go, I'll just have some little detail about the tortillas on the table. And people are like, oh, yeah, those tortillas, you know, like no matter what we ate, hamburgers, spaghetti, carne asada, enchiladas, there was always the tortillas on the table. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's actually hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the confusion and the struggle with cultural identity and you know, just all of it and just all of it. And it's really difficult to keep maintain a culture when it's getting bastardized on any given day. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. Where it is just evolving, it's coming together and then falling apart. I think my whole life has been looking at all of the cultural richness that I have mm-hmm. and saying, Okay, which, where, what's the new formula this year? Like, or even this month? Like, I don't think of it as a static thing. Yes, which is the power that Latinas hold in having their cultural ancestry. It's pulsing in them. You know, your DNA doesn't know where you live. You know, it's like, oh, you're in Berkeley. You're just white now. No. So you're immersing your family, your friends in their culture, But then you're also making sure that the Latino women and women of color have a place to be accepted and empowered. You seem to give back that uh, directly to the women. Did this lead to something additional in your professional career when you're making space for Latinas to be successful? Yes, especially from my experience of not having a good time being an employee, right? So that out of all those bad experiences, I I self-employed and I thought I want to work to help change the the environments that are were so harmful for me, right? So I became a trainer and a consultant and I also became a coach and that was very much that transition. I'm always looking for how do I use my equity heart, my mm-hmm. equity lens to do good work in the world. My whole focus is on small businesses of color because, Yay. you know, one of the hugest equity issues is the um, the wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Small businesses of color are so passionate about what they're doing. They're so under-resourced. Yes. Ah, they just don't understand a lot of this So I have been repurposing all of the things that I bring to the table from all that other work. And just, it's like getting, you know, a new bouquet. Like, okay, (laughs) I'm taking out these chrysanthemums and now I'm adding, you know, birds of paradise, right? Like it's still a bouquet life, but I, there's now flowers that are no longer part of my bouquet life. And now there's different flowers that are part of my bouquet life. But the values and the purpose of what I'm doing, which is, you know, liberation and joy for all beings like that, that hasn't changed in all these years. It's now like I have this uh, different way that I am doing it in the world. Oh, and we need about 100 million of you. Gosh, Linda, it's just so powerful that it comes so naturally and you don't think about it. You just act. You're always seeing what could be done and you inherently already know who you are so it naturally comes from you you don't have to sit there and figure it out 
Well, yes and no. I mean, you still do have to figure it out. And that I have to be so clear about my purpose, right? And whenever I work with coaching clients, I always have them work on their purpose. Because I go, if you aren't crystal clear about your purpose, when all the problems start happening, you know, you will, you'll quit. You know, you will start internalizing. That's my second book, right? breaking through your own glass ceiling, like you'll begin to internalize all those messages that, oh, you know, you were not meant to succeed. You're going to fail. I don't even know why you try, right? All that deep stuff. And so that for me is, you know, you don't see it. You don't see the grind, like the Mm day-to-day ways that you and I and everybody gets through our Mm -hmm. days and gets things done. You know, you can see our end product, But people cannot possibly understand each of our particular journeys and all the things that we have done. But the most important thing is we're never alone. There's always other people who are grinding away like we are because we just we believe so deeply in what our values are and what change we want to see in the world. Yes. Empowering these women and especially in the small business can fuel someone, especially a Latina woman of color who has this really heavy wet blanket of society on her. Oh, you could just light up and burn through that wet blanket. So your second book really focuses on empowering women to to not feel held back and to, yes, you have it. Well, actually, it empowers them to accept that most of what is going to be their problems in their lives and their wanting to achieve their dreams uh, is that they will be held back not by by systems that were not built to support them. So I said, you know what, Uh, you know, vision boards and affirmations are not going to make up for unjust policies and procedures. They just aren't. And there's a way where many motivational self-help books uh, tell people, oh, if you just meditate and, and practice yoga and tell yourself you love yourself in the mirror 10 times, you know, and I, my book is like, no, 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 no. There are real glass ceilings. They're real. They, we experience them all the time. Mm-hmm. So how do you still live a full-hearted life in spite of real glass yeah. ceilings? And that the part of that is that you begin to understand what you've already internalized And then you begin to dismantle your internalized glass ceilings. Where have you believed that you can only earn a certain amount of money? Because if you earn more, you're greedy. Oh, that's so true. Oh, my goodness. Right? Right. you're not. I cannot tell you how many women of color, people of color, Latinas I have worked with who have a glass ceiling on how much they get to earn. And when I, we dig into it, it's kind of like because they've got all these messages that, you know, that you uh, you can't be wealthy, you can't have money and not be greedy. And I'm like, oh, no, profits means more purpose. Profits means more opportunities to help your family and your community. It's a different way of looking at profits, that it's about <laughs> human earth yeah. and environmental yes. benefits, right? Right. Yes. And it's very necessary to take ourselves out from what we are experiencing, though, even in those toxic work environments, you associate it with the greed of the corporate mentality where you don't want to be that and you don't know how to embrace yourself in a different vision of what wealth can mean and the power of wealth. 
That's right. And part okay. of it is is accepting though your own internal wealth and that being wealthy is not just about money. It's about your your lived experience, your culture, uh, the, your capacity to care about other people and allow people to love you and help you. The amount of times I have to support my uh, mostly women of color clients to let people love them up and uh, give them help is huge. So there's also yeah. a glass ceiling, which is about, I have to do it all myself. And I, you know, there's just so many mental constructs that we have been raised with or have been given to us in our workplaces or with, from our partners. Mm -hmm. And then we have accepted them. So the second book is really like, how do you break through those? Because that's where you have all the power in the world, all the power in the world. Like, can you do something about racist, sexist, homophobic uh, policies that impact hiring? I mean, you could, you know, if you got into HR, did other things, but you can begin to excavate, right, Escarabad, and understand where you have bought into it and believed it, but because it's unrelenting, Consuelo. Yeah. It's unrelenting. It happens. Yeah. It's not something in the past. A lot of it started when we were little. It's like you, you have to ac accept a lot just for survival purposes. And, and then you lose Absolutely. track. You lose track as to yep. why you're doing it, especially because yep. you're doing it as a young kid. And, and anybody, even if you're born here and have six generations of Americans right. as your heritage, you're doing things as a little kid that you don't acknowledge as to why. Um, and they just become you and you pass that on. Right. Unexamined life. Yeah. Oh, there's the, is that the next book? The unexamined life. No, I do have okay. another book, but it is a book about examining your life. hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. I've heard this described before and I've been really adopting it because it keeps me focused that how you view wealth, or how you view yourself in your business, especially for our entrepreneurials who have um, their own business and dealing with your clients and having boundaries, seeing yourself as worth wealth, worth what you charge, worth um, the amount of effort and <laughs> blood, sweat and tears you put into your product, that we don't go cheap on that. And yep. yet that can be associated with how we view ourselves. Like you were saying, if we don't hold value for ourselves, we don't hold value in our product, in our business, in our wealth value either. It's a direct association. Do you think that's on yes, point? Yes, hmm. I think it is on point. And we also don't hold value for the generations to come because the whole point of wealth is, and generational wealth, yeah. is about creating access to the generations that are, you know, to having value for them. Because, you know, I think a lot of the younger generations are not pleased with us and yeah. feel like what they are inheriting is a very sick, mm -hmm. uh, problematic uh, world. And so for me, I am thinking, okay, that is true. So what is my part? in doing what I can to make this a healthier world. And part of it is, you know, because I part of my purpose is for the generations to come, mm -hmm. right, which is very culturally indigenous. 
know, it is about today, but sure. it is all about, you know, the word sustainability is the hot buzzword. And before Indigenous yeah. folks around the world had to think about sustainability because yeah. they were, they, you know, the world They didn't go was, steal it from somebody else. Yeah, <laughs> they had to figure out how to live in there where they lived mm -hmm. and make do with what was there for them mm -hmm. in there. You know, they didn't have it shipped in yep. trucks to them and and oh you know right. fruit that's out of season quote right. unquote like all these subtle things that we've gotten very used to like when i want mm -hmm. my uh whatever i want it you know and right. i'm like yeah but you know what it costs to get you your your avocado all year round like that's that's a huge cost can you just live without them for like two or three months it's not mm -hmm. fun but you know it's part of mm -hmm. those small and important decisions we make every day about the world that we live in and how to be once I love this uh, indigenous woman said, you know, we're not taking care of the earth. Like even that is such human supremacy. The earth is taking care of us. Hello there. Like right. we, uh, we lie on the earth like, and we're killing it. Yeah. Let's just change that whole idea that we're good stewards of the earth. It's like, no, we are not. The earth is t tending to us, Yeah, which is constantly having to flip it over and just say, okay, what if we look at it from a completely different perspective and view? Um, it's like in yoga where you do inversions, you know, you do a headstand or a, a yeah. shoulder stand and it's about going upside down. It's a whole different view. So <laughs> how do we create practices to go, to go upside mm -hmm. down in how, whatever that means, right? How do we mm -hmm. say, oh, I always believed this. What if it wasn't true? Oh yeah. Disrupt, disrupt what you know disrupt. and go into the unknown disrupt and see it, see what exactly. you learn from that. Oh, that's right. Wow. This is such a deep interview. I'm loving this. I have a question because you live life beyond large. I, again, my adjectives are inadequate during this interview. You live life large. You've touched on yoga and being an athlete, soccer, tennis, and your social justice, your fight for improving and the wealth value and the personal value of Latinas and women of color. It's just huge. Uh, what is something, even in that huge life, that someone would not guess is part of you? Mm. What could you really shock someone with? Well, that's interesting. What could I shock people with? You know, I think part of it was highlighted with the pandemic, that there is a deep inner monk. I can be alone and quiet for hours and hours and just be very content. My natural tendency and when people meet me is a very extroverted, very, you know, large, large aura, which is yes. all true. But I am very, very content with silence and with quiet and with myself. And that has taken me years and years and years to cultivate. If I can go days and not, if I don't have to talk to anybody, I'm good. Oh, yeah, that would not go hand in hand to everything we've just listened to. Wow. <laughs> oh, Linda, this is a fantastic. You have such depth and complexity. And yet, like you say, you bring it all to the surface. Like you, you live life large and you live it outwardly. And the views that you've shared with us have really fractured some, for me at least, very traditional thinking of now I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Wow. I have to go back. I might have to go 
disappear for a few weeks and do some heavy thinking. <laughs> Just like, wait a minute. I thought I was pretty squared away with myself. And now I'm thinking, oh, wow. This is a very empowering interview. And I really, really thank you for sharing your time, sharing your story, sharing so much guidance and sharing your books, which we will put out on the show notes and on our website and have links to where they could be purchased so that people can go ahead and dig deeper. So fantastic. Thank you so very, very much. We really appreciate your time and your energy. Well, and I want to say thank you to you because I don't get to speak unless you create this environment and there are people to listen. So all a web of interconnected in this and there is nothing that we do that does not touch other people. Yes. If we want our story told, we have to have a place to say it, to say it in our own words and in our own time. And we have to want to listen to other people. 100%. Remember to take the time to share this podcast with your friends and family. Please encourage them to subscribe to the podcast by tapping follow or add or on Apple, it's a little plus sign on any of your favorite streaming podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. They can also listen to episodes on our website at thelinks.com. That's L-N-X-X. Get some peeks of what's coming up in our episodes on our social media at LifeLinks. And if you would like to be a guest on this podcast, then reach out to me via the email tab on the LifeLinks Instagram. The more we tell our stories, the greater our narrative becomes and the louder our voices. From the stories of your ancestors to your own and those of future generations, we want to listen and learn of your journey. Step into your truth, ladies. Ciao. Really appreciate the time you take to rate and review the podcast. Get the backstory and what you've heard here today and reach out to us at thelinks.com. That's L-N-X-X. Because it's about time, it's about us. Stay in the groove on our social media at LifeLinks and get ready to make your move, ladies. Viva! Viva!